You are listening to the Ecology Hour, and I will be your host this evening, Hannah Bird. Now, this evening, we will be revisiting an interview recorded in the fall of 2016 with local pollinator experts and enthusiasts, including Kate Fry, who is a wonderful gardener and pollinator expert, Kathy Munro, a local naturalist, and Lavender Cinnamon of Bee Bold and Thanksgiving Coffee, who was integral in the creation of Fort Bragg becoming the USA's first bee-friendly city. So this evening, as I mentioned, um, I was inspired after seeing an article that told me that Fort Bragg became the first California city to be declared a Bee City USA. Um, the Fort Bragg City Council was actually encouraged to seek that designation by the nonprofit Bee City USA and also by Lavender Cinnamon and Paul Katzoff of Bee Bold Mendocino and the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. They're going to be one of our guests this evening. We'll be joined by Lavender Cinnamon. And we're also going to be thinking about some of the other pollinators that are so important, not just bees. We're lucky enough to have Kathy Monroe in our county, a wonderful naturalist. She's a, a, an official California naturalist and also a great teacher and educator for many years in our community. And she's been pushing people to grow milkweed in their backyards. Now, if you know anything about milkweed, you may well know that it's one of the food plants for the monarch butterfly. And of course, it's, you know, that monarch butterfly is perhaps the butterfly we think of when we imagine a butterfly. Fly. They do live around here and that's a great way to get them in your garden. So we'll be sharing some of that information with Kathy Monroe and then we'll round out the program with another real local expert, Kate Fry, who has recently written a book about bee-friendly gardens and showing you how you can make your garden into not just a bee but a wildlife haven. So it's a great lineup this evening. We're looking forward to meeting our guests. And so let's get started by having a conversation with Lavender Cinnamon of Thanksgiving Coffee to understand what the connection between coffee and bees and becoming a bee city is. So, Lavender, I heard that recently the city of Fort Bragg has become a bee city. How has that happened and how is that connected to coffee? Hi, well, thank you for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to be here and speak about this wonderful project called Be Bold and Be Bold Mendocino. Um, the Bee City USA came to Fort Bragg through there's several different meetings of our Be Bold Advisory Committee and as well as a um, a suggestion from one of a concerned citizen mentioning that there was such a thing as Bee City USA. I looked into it and immediately we thought that Fort Bragg being our home city from Thanksgiving coffee that that would be the best um, target first. We called in Dave Turner and he immediately loved the idea. He'd been a beekeeper who was looking to get back involved in beekeeping and was very happy to bring this to his council and they were able to sign this on on June 23rd. What does that actually mean for the city of Fort Bragg? How will people behave differently or how do you hope they might behave differently? 
it is a, a resolution within the city and all city lands and in their governance that they are going to be a pollinator protector. And so that means any policies moving forward will be tailored by that, which includes use of pesticides, which includes making sure that there's forage for bees. Those are one of the two main elements that is causing this decline in the bee population. And then also bringing an awareness and a tolerance um, to other people to realize how important pollinators are to our ecology. <laughs> From the time that you've spent doing this work so far, what kind of level of understanding do you feel like the public do have? Do, have you been surprised at how involved in this people already are, or are you really understanding yourself perhaps more how we can all make a difference and just what how critical this is i'd say that it's been a real mix of um a real range of people who had no idea who were blown away at the facts and the figures of the decline and the importance of our pollinators could you share some of those facts and figures with us i could share that I believe nationwide uh, we've had a 40% decline in um, professional beekeeping um, in the industry, their, their hives, they've lost you know, an average of 40%, which is devastating. I know that you know, it's been in the last 20 years, which also correlates with the introduction of the neonicotinoids and the systemic pesticides. Um, there's been many, many studies. I have to say that my my grasp and my scope of of knowledge on the subject has really been just within this last year. So I, I've done a lot, but I don't have all those figures, and I'm really much more I've embraced it on a level where I've started I've gotten beehives and I share with everyone the three main areas of, of concentration of helping to turn our county into a bee city or a bee friendly county is to educate our citizenry uh, second is to um, really plant forage, mm -hmm. encourage everyone to plant forage because the bees are starving. Mm -hmm. And the big problem of that is the monoculture and the practices of modern agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and so really helping to educate how important it is to have that food. Mm -hmm. Also leaving wild um, flowers and wild areas. And so that's also uh, brought to the city of Fort Bragg mm -hmm. um, and their awareness to also encourage that within the city limits. Um, and then the third thing is also to address the use of pesticides, which is going to be a big challenge. Our, our county has a very large number of vineyards, and right now, through the Ag Department, the only people that we've really been able to see that are asking for the neonicotinoid uh, permits are the wineries. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really important. We've been working with several different wineries that are already using these uh, bee-friendly practices, mm -hmm. and it's totally possible and doable. How we can transition the county into that um, awareness is, um, we have our work cut out for us, mm -hmm. but education's the first step. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that there are some wineries, and I, I know I've been to some, and we see, you know, examples on some of these beautiful vineyards mm -hmm. of areas where they've planted for bees. Mm -hmm. Are there any ones specifically you might mention that have really worked hard in that area? 
I would say we've been working with Parducci and Jess Arnstein, who is the edible manager um, of Parducci, and he's been wonderful. He's been on the advisory committee and really helping us with that, so I'd say Parducci is very active in that. Also, Bonterra from the Fetzer Vineyards. Mm. Those are the two, and we actually have a list. Um, that's one thing that we're going to be proactive about is really helping to support the, those wineries that are practicing bee-friendly practices and really bring to light those that are already doing it. And that's really the approach uh, mm -hmm. to support those that are already doing that work. Once they are acknowledged, recognized, hopefully that can ripple out and see that those practices are possible and that they're successful for everyone. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that um, one of the things that everybody could do is planting more forage in their gardens and perhaps that balances out some of the agriculture that we see in dominant areas that in your own backyard you could be planting something mm -hmm. what 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 have you planted it sounds like you've got bees so maybe you've got some good stuff in your yard tell yes. us about it well thank you i um, have just recently moved in the last month so i'm believe it or not i'm planning to l plant lavender <laughs> <laughs> uh, partially because lavender honey is amazing and you just think of the fields of Provence and some of the most highly prized honey mm. and so it's also the plant is very um, drought resistant mm -hmm. um, so that's beneficial mm -hmm. all around and there is so many um, different and it really depends on what your soil is it depends on all these different things but one thing I can as a broad brush stroke mm -hmm. is encourage planting of a large amount of the same type of plant in an area mm -hmm. but what and I'm actually going to send you to a master gardener who does have this knowledge and that is Kate Fry and she just wrote a book that came out um, just in February and it is how to plant a bee friendly garden and so that would be your resource mm -hmm. for that. And just to mention that those of you, many of you may well have heard of Kate Fry. Um, she's renowned for incredible garden design and even exhibiting at Chelsea Flower Show and, and winning awards there. She will be um, offering a talk on bee-friendly gardening at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre on September 17th. And that will be from 10 a.m., to 2 p.m. with a chance to actually visit her garden in the midst of that. So that's a great chance for you to actually find out more about the, the flowers that you could be planting in your garden. Um, so what I, I'm really interested, I mean, obviously it sounds like you've got captured a little bit by this whole bee buzz. So you, you started to have your own hives, right? So tell me a bit about that and how it's going. Well, it's very exciting. Um, I have always loved bees and they've been on my periphery of something that I wanted to delve into deeper and so the opportunity to do that at work with this new job was a gift and um, and so just in April I started with two different hives started to study all the different types of beehives 90% of people in the beekeeping world use Langstroth hives mm -hmm. which is at one particular hive body um, there are several others and I chose the two other alternative hives that are quite popular as well they're on the rise one is called the people's hive which is the ware hive it's a little more bee centric it's more um, catered to their natural way of being not interfering mm -hmm. with what they naturally do um, you don't have a as high a honey yield with that mm -hmm. and that's part of why people use the Langstroth it's really for the 
the honey production. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to find a balance between the honey and also being um, conscious of the sentient beings that these bees are. And so the other hive that I have is a top bar hive, mm -hmm. and that also um, is very bee friendly and not as high uh, honey yield but also very easy to work so mm -hmm. I'm experimenting and so far I have to say I really am very happy with the ware um, it's very light it's easy it was it's called the people's hive because they're um, really meant for people to beekeep um, in a way that's not harmful to them or the bees so mm. I, I find my hive that's in that ware hive is very happy mm. and so I'm pretty hands-off. Mm -hmm. um, they are going crazy right now. I just put another box. They are just multiplying and multiplying. I um, I look forward to this long relationship with them, and um, I'd like to get more. But I've, I've heard um, that in Anderson Valley that the beekeepers are having a hard time overwintering. Like last year, not many overwintered. And there may be a correlation with how many wineries there are and how many pesticides. So we have to look into that. But the, the valley is an amazingly lush valley. I don't know why. And there, there can be many factors, but um, I'm up on the hill in Signal Ridge, so it's mm. a little further away. Mm. I'm hoping that we can move through whatever this down, um, you know, decline has mm. been. And at, at least right here on a, you know, micro level, mm. support our pollinators um, and show how it can be done so other people can also mm. replicate that. Mm. So one thing that I've learned a little bit about in learning more about pollinators is we sometimes get um, clued into our honeybee, um, Apis mellifluor, I think it's called, right? And uh, that's the one we think about with us, the kind of standard bee or a big bumblebee. But we actually have many, many native bees as well that perhaps aren't producing honey for us or you know, couldn't be producing honey, but have a vital role as pollinators. Do you have anything to comment on, on those bees as well? Like, is that something that's included in your projects? It is included in the Bee Bold Mendocino, definitely, um, because we want to make our county friendly for all bees and pollinators. Um, several things have come up about the wild bee population, and Kate Fry, again, really speaks to that, um, that they're much better pollinators than actually the honeybees are. Um, they have more of a... Um, they're just more tolerant to our weather and to the climate because they are acclimatized to this native area. Um, and so they can fly out when there's, they can fly in the rain, you know, they, they can longer hours um, foraging. Um, so there's several different factors, but the main thing is that they are native to this area mm -hmm. and so that they um, have that strength about them. The other thing is that Ukiah was identified as having one of the largest population of wild bees um, in this bee study that was done. And I don't have much information about it, but I found it quite fascinating um, that we already um, in this county have that um, population of wild bees mm -hmm. here. That's exciting to hear. One of the uh, projects which is done at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre is um, looking at what different kinds of bees we have here. So, you know, we have one other person in the studio with us today. We have your lovely daughter, Isabella. Isabella, I, I know that this is quite hard for you, but I wonder, Isabella, have you ever seen the bees? Do you get involved with the bees in your garden at all? 
a little bit yeah which is do you, are you do you get scared of them at all because they sting or are you not really scared of them anymore kind of kind of have you ever been stung just yeah you have but she's nodding her head there well I, I understand that but i think it's so exciting that you are getting the chance to get raised with some pet bees that's so exciting now the really cool thing is are you going to try some of their honey of course <laughs> as i would hope that's great to hear well lavender i know that you have other places to be i just want to finish off the interview by asking what the next steps are for making mendocino a bee-friendly county so as I mentioned earlier, the, the really first element is to educate everyone, um, educate them to the fact that this is uh, a really critical time to make this happen. Mm -hmm. um, for not just for us, but for everyone involved. I mean, it's a, a global issue um, that we can really make movement towards here locally. The, um, the actual steps will be to get the other three cities in our county to sign on as B-City USA and write into their governance um, the protection. Um, so which cities are those? The next city would be Willits. And following that will be Point Arena, and lastly would be Ukiah. And so those are the four cities within our county, is Fort Bragg, Willits, Point Arena, and Ukiah. That's really exciting. Well, we look forward to having you back on the show in the future when perhaps we see Willits as the next bee-friendly city. And we really appreciate all the work that you and uh, Thanksgiving Coffee and Paul Katzoff and all of the partners that you have created in this project. It's, it's been a while coming, but I think it's something that's really exciting. So thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you very much. And I, I want to thank Noyo Food Forest for being our fiscal sponsor for Be Bold Mendocino and Cornelia Reynolds and everything that she's been doing for this as well. Okay. Well, thanks so much to Lavender. That was a wonderful introduction to the show this evening to understand the importance of pollinators and how we can all start to make a difference in our own backyards and how indeed Mendocino County is taking steps towards becoming a bee county. That would be so exciting to have happen. I'm looking forward to hearing Willets and Point Arena and Ukiah all joining Fort Bragg becoming bee cities. So to follow on this evening, I want to look a little bit deeper at uh, some of the other pollinators we have in our gardens. Now, if you imagine a, a butterfly, I suspect it's one of those beautiful deep orange with black pattern, lacy pattern across the wings, an amazing monarch butterfly. It's kind of the butterfly that we think of. And of course, even their caterpillars have this wonderful yellow and white and black stripes. They're just so eye-catching. Well, those butterflies are a species that we share Mendocino with. They do travel through here. They are a it is a place that they may be stopping and even laying their eggs and having their caterpillars. Well, how do we encourage those, this incredible species to come into our garden. Kathy Monroe is a local California naturalist and has been looking into how we can encourage milkweed in our gardens and particularly native milkweed. So let's move over to Kathy now to understand a bit more about what we could do to get those monarch butterflies into our garden. 
So welcome to Cathy Monroe, who we are so lucky to have in our community, <laughs> a local naturalist, um, a California naturalist and educator. And Cathy, I've come to you with a number of different questions. Somebody I know who knows a lot about different species around here, but also who've got very involved in one specific project. So could you start us off with a better understanding of the value of pollinators in our region or even beyond? Well, uh, yeah, they're essential. <laughs> so much of our food is pollinated um, by insects and other pollinators. Uh, very little is pollinated by the wind, and it affects both the food that's available to us and the food that's available to all the other life, mm-hmm. um, life forms around Mm -hmm. So we've just been talking with Lavender Cinnamon from Thanksgiving Coffee about their Be Bold initiative and their their coffee and also about Fort Bragg becoming a bee city. We're hoping to see the whole of Mendocino County to actually become a a bee county. Um, Of course, bees aren't the only pollinators. You have been particularly working with another species. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's my capstone project for... Um, my California naturalist uh, training. I chose to work on a butterfly garden um, and turned out focusing on monarchs when I realized um, how much they've been infect- affected by the loss of habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, monarchs need milkweed, and milkweed has been disappearing, and so have the monarchs. It's one species that, you know, I feel like everybody has in their heads what a monarch looks like. We don't tend to see them that frequently, and I think when I first moved here, I didn't really even appreciate that they were travelling through or that they even sometimes would be um, laying their eggs and we'd see their caterpillars here. But that is the case, right? This is a part of the world where we would we would see them. Right. When I first started teaching about 30 years ago, it, I was able to to go out and find a milkweed patch and gather some caterpillars that I could then raise in the classroom. And they go through their life cycle really rapidly, so the kids could see them go from caterpillar to chrysalis to then be hatched out as butterflies Mm. all in those first few weeks of school, and then they would be released to overwinter um, in sites along the coast. Um, And then I realized I couldn't find them anymore, Mm. and I wasn't seeing monarchs around. And I realized locally part of it was the conversion in ag land um, that when the pear orchards were around, there were kind of more edges where mm-hmm. they would leave the milkweed patches. And when they converted to vineyards, it tended to go to the property lines. So we were losing them that way. And then I also realized just the use of herbicides and the heavy-duty weedy whacking, but particularly herbicides. Mm-hmm. Milkweed can come back after being... Um, mode, but mm. it's totally killed by herbicides. Mm. So tell me a little bit more about with milkweed. I mean, this is definitely a native plant species that is in in this area, and am I right in thinking that there are particular kinds of milkweed that we really want to bring back as much as we can? Right. We want the local native milkweeds as much mm. as possible, mm-hmm. and there are four or five of them that are local to this county. Um, some that are common in other parts of California as well, one of them being the narrow-leaf milkweed. Mm. And when we've had speakers come to talk about milkweed, we were given seed packets of the narrow-leaf to hand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have um, what's called heart-leaf milkweed or Asclepia. The family is Asclepius. Mm-hmm. 
which is native here. Uh, it's Asclepias cordifolia. Mm-hmm. And then we have showy milkweed that's native here. Mm-hmm. And then we have area carpa, which mm-hmm. is um, one of the common broadleaf ones around here. Mm-hmm. So you've been looking into these, these native, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to me that what started off as what an eight-hour capstone project <laughs> yes. has gone on. We're now four or five years, I think, after that. Um, so you started it off as that, and then you started to get connected perhaps with other groups. How did it, how did it snowball? Um, just talking to people and other people realize, oh, yes, we're not seeing the monarchs and we're not seeing the butterflies. Because the problem I want to emphasize, too, is not just the monarchs. It's um, a lot of normally common butterflies are disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers are way down. And so just as I became more educated, I, I started reaching out to educate more people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which you do so well, and we appreciate so much. So... What what can we do then? Please educate us. I mean, as I said, the the monarch is this kind of such a symbol of a butterfly, isn't it? You know, it's oh, got this right. incredible journey. So perhaps could you start us with that? Tell us what's amazing about these monarch butterflies in particular. Uh, well, they're truly animal champions. <laughs> <laughs> Their migration is considered one of the great phenomenons of the natural world, where um, they overwinter in, in the West Coast. Uh, often in sites in California, um, or, or pretty much specifically in, in certain sites in California. Uh, and after the winter is over in February, they mate and disperse out. Uh, and they really don't know exactly the, um, the patterns for the dispersal of the monarchs on the Pacific Coast. They'd mm-hmm. like to know more. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I that we need citizen scientists out there just noticing when they see monarchs. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, And it takes several generations as they go out um, from their original site, going inland and north, um, up to even Oregon and Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, And then then they start coming back uh, in uh, late summer, fall, Mm -hmm. uh, to overwinter. Um, and that's one single generation. That's kind of the super generation, the, the last one right. that overwinters. Um, and some of those, I think, are actually bred here. Then they have to have enough energy to spend the whole winter, and then they're the ones that start the cycle again coming up in the spring. It's, they're pretty amazing, aren't they? It's yeah, just, they so, really are. And I, you know, as I say, when I first moved here, I thought, good grief, we have that species here. That's so exciting. So, you know, as you've pointed out, we do have that species here, but not in the numbers it, we used to historically. What what can we all do? We can go and plant milkweed. Where, where yep. do we find it? What do we do? <laughs> well, um, the college, I think, is going to be uh, having plants available sale and People that have taken some of our feed packets have got extra plants that we might try to disperse, mm-hmm. uh, maybe at the farmer's market in Ukiah. Uh, the, um, you, like I said, people can start their own mm-hmm. from seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to warn people not to plant the tropical milkweed that's common in nurseries mm-hmm. because it carries parasites and doesn't go dormant. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a number of issues with that, so the more often they can get the native milkweed planted, the better. Right. And if they have the tropical milkweed, they need to cut it back so um, butterflies don't hang around uh-huh. longer than they should. Uh-huh. Um, the, let me see, other 
sources. If there are places, I mean, they can go onto the Internet and find seed sources mm-hmm. and nurseries that have milkweed. Uh, I'm sure Cal Flora and um, Fulton, mm-hmm. Sonoma County has it. Mm-hmm. And other nurseries here are starting to stock it because people are asking for it. And, and you've actually been involved in spreading that milkweed on other projects. I did, am I right in thinking that you right. helped on the Yukaya Railroad um, yes, Rail we're, Trail we're, project? Right. Well, we haven't got our milkweed planted there yet. We started with oak trees, but we're going to plant milkweed along there um, this fall. Excellent. And I know that the project that's happening at the Grace Hudson Museum with yes. native plants. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a milkweed patch there as well. Gosh. Um, and we've been collecting local seed. That's something that people can be doing now is trying to find patches where there's enough native seed. Right. Um, and that's something you have to do carefully, that you have to, you have to wait till the pods are ready to burst right. or else the seeds aren't mature enough. But when they burst, they disperse really rapidly. Oh, okay. so, so people can tie a string around them, uh-huh. uh, which is what we're doing at the outdoor ed right. uh, at our butterfly garden. Yes. Um, in in the um, library, mm-hmm. the Mendocino County Library is developing a bank mm-hmm. of seeds, including mm-hmm. milkweed, so people can get seeds there. And um, there are p- other people that are planting milkweed, like I know Jess Arnstein at mm-hmm. Parducci is mm-hmm. planting a bunch of milkweed. Yeah, we've just been talking a little bit about how some vineyards are really making great steps in having areas where pollinators are more than welcome. Right, yeah. and, and I'd like to see it, and we're trying to get it going in the school gardens. Excellent. And um, I'd like to see it in other parks, public places like Low Gap and yeah. River Park. Um, but I think we want to really try to gather local seed, because mm-hmm. the, the more local it is, the better adapted it is to mm-hmm. both the insects mm-hmm. and the well, I really, yeah, I, I really appreciate the, the, both the efforts you've put into this, just as a, a local person with this knowledge and passion, and I also appreciate you giving your time today. Um, is there anything else that you would want to leave our listeners with as a, a message to protect our pollinators, and particularly those monarchs? Yeah, I guess the, the main thing um, is, you know, there's lots we can do. We can advocate for policy change. So I'm sure Lavender talked about the neonicotinoids that mm-hmm. they're concerned about with with um, bees, mm-hmm. it's the same problem if you buy plants in nurseries or use that kind of a spray. Mm-hmm. Uh, those plants, uh, that uh, toxin can hang around for months and not years, mm-hmm. like I was reading. So, so advocacy for changing some policies and what you use, uh, making people aware of milkweed patches to preserve them, planting milkweed in your own garden. Yeah. The other thing that's really important is nectar plants. Uh, uh, particularly as the, the butterflies are coming through, uh-huh. um, especially for that last, you know, the ones that are going to overwinter, they need a lot of fuel mm, of to course. be stored in their body. Yeah. And Xerxes, I was going to say, there's mm-hmm. some really good sites that people mm-hmm. can check out, and Xerxes is going to be putting out a list this summer of, um, of prime um, nectar plants for monarchs. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So those are those, there's these great opportunities to, for you to find out more about how you can um, support the monarchs. And, and the rewards are huge, right? Because I just think seeing either those big, stripy caterpillars or those fantastic yeah, butterflies. Oh, aren't they just... <laughs> and the chrysalises are just oh, sublime, too. Gosh. Well, I haven't seen one of those. I have to, I have to oh, plant my amazing. milkweed. <laughs> they, they literally have gold dots on them. Gosh. Yeah. 
Thank you for bringing those jewels back to our county and let's hope that, um, you know, we continue to see some resurgence as we uh, see this kind of movement and interest locally. Kathy, I know you're a busy lady and I appreciate your time today. So we look forward to speaking to you again in the future on the Ecology Hour. Great. Thank okay. you. Thanks so much to Kathy Monroe, such a great educator and naturalist in our community, for explaining the need for monarchs in our garden. Now, monarchs are one of the species that really are looking under great threat currently, and so everything that we can do in our own gardens is, is really most most important. I, I want to move on now. We don't want to just think about that milkweed, but think about the whole garden and what we might be able to do to attract all these different kinds of pollinators and even other wildlife beyond that into our gardens. And again, we're so lucky in this community to have an expert like Kate Fry, who many of you may know as a, an amazing garden designer. She has exhibited her gardens in shows, garden shows such as the Chelsea Flower Show. Um, and she's particularly become interested in more recently in thinking about pollinators and how to plant a pollinator-friendly garden. She has, in fact, written a book about it. So let's move over now to Kate and hear a bit more about how we could create a garden space that would attract all of these pollinators. Thanks so much for being with us today, Kate. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> We've been talking today about the new bee city, Fort Bragg, and we've also touched base with Kathy Monroe about our local monarchs and milkweed project. Could you explain to me a little bit more about the value of our native pollinators and how we can all take action in our own back gardens? Well, in, a lot of people don't realize that um, we have native bees. They think honeybees are, are native bees. Uh, but there are 1,600 species of native bees in California and 4,000 in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, and um, there are many species here uh, around uh, Ukiah to um, to the coast, all all areas of Mendocino County. In fact, we have a real richness of uh, diversity and, and good uh, populations here. And there's quite a lot that we could do in our own uh, backyards to foster them. There are many uh, bee-friendly plants that do very well in Mendocino County, both on the, on the coast and, um, and inland. But just a few tips on planting uh, bee-friendly gardens, and these would be bee-friendly to native bees and to honeybees. They uh, both visit many of the same flowers. Uh, many of our native plants are very attractive to both uh, native bees and honeybees, and so maybe I'll, uh, and I'll go through uh, some of those, but I uh, first wanted to give you sort of an, an overview of, mm -hmm. of the, what you want to think about in terms of setting up a, a bee-friendly garden. Thank you. That's and perfect. <laughs> so you want to um, think about uh, plant, having plants blooming from as early as possible in the season, say January or February, um, to as late as in the season as possible, and you would, would want to ideally have a number of things blooming uh, at e each month of the year. The uh, bees need a uh, diverse diet, or mm -hmm. most bees do, uh, just, just as we do. There are a few bees that are specialist bees, and they will only visit the flowers of uh, plants in a specific family, like the, uh, the squash bee mm -hmm. uh, only visits plants in the uh, zucchini and, and, or not zucchini, squash and, and gourd families, mm -hmm. and you can them if you go out to your vegetable garden and look into the zucchini flowers very early in the morning and you'll see their 
uh, little faces looking at you, mm-hmm. and those are uh, male squash bees, which uh, sleep in the flowers. Uh, so these are very, very easy to identify and uh, and really fun. And it's amazing that most of us walk by them our entire lives <laughs> without we t- noticing. We do tend to think, don't we, when we think of bees, we just think of honeybees and bumblebees, mm-hmm. and we don't go much beyond that. So this, you know, those figures that you just quoted me of the number of different native bees we have are, is really incredible. Yeah, and you could see a, a number of these different uh, species um, on Dr. Gordon Frankie at UC Berkeley's website, mm-hmm. and that's simply helpabee.org, mm-hmm. and he's got absolutely remarkable photos and information about their life cycles and about his uh, amazing research surveying uh, native bees across California, so that would be a an excellent place to uh, get to know some of them and then uh, be able to identify some in your gardens. And it's exciting since he actually does come out and do a certain amount of research in our county. I know he has yes. done research up at the Hopland Research Extension Centre in the past, so we're really, you know, well connected there. <laughs> and uh, he has a number of, uh, or a few gardens that he's been surveying for about 10 years in Ukiah, and this mm. is where he's found that uh, there is really quite a number of, uh, of diversity of, of species and, um, and good populations of them. Hmm. So, so yeah. yeah, go on, so, go on ahead. I know I took you off on a tangent a little bit, but please do tell us yeah. more about those bees and and what we could be doing, what plants we might want to plant. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so you want uh, to ideally have plants blooming uh, for a very over a very long season, so our entire growing season. Mm-hmm. Uh, honeybees are also very active early in our seasons. You'll see them out in February on warm afternoons, and oftentimes collecting pollen from some of our early. Uh, blooming uh, native trees, such mm-hmm. as um, alders and uh, and then a little bit later uh, maples. So they're mm-hmm. mostly gathering pollen uh, from these trees. And then they'll be uh, visiting um, uh, manzanitas, and you'll see quite a lot of uh, native bees and hummingbirds on, uh, on our early blooming manzanitas. Mm-hmm. But just to get back to some of the other factors that we want to think about mm-hmm. in terms of establishing a bee garden, so we have early bloom, and we have um, a diversity of uh, flowers blooming, so these could be perennials, annuals, shrubs, or trees, uh, whatever is best for you. Mm -hmm. And then a a third thing that's that's very important is to have a uh, sufficient plant species. So let's say, for instance, you plant um, the blanket flower or a gallardia, which is a wonderful summer-blooming annual that grows very, very well here. Uh, you wouldn't. You would want to have more than one plant. You would want to have. You want to have at least a three by three foot area of each plant um, for the bees. And so, so, if you're a patch person and you like to group things, you can do that. If you like sort of a more naturalistic effect, you can uh, dot the same plant around your garden. It really doesn't matter. And that's because you are um, providing a particular kind of flower that might appeal to a particular kind of native bee in, a, in a, a, enough of a quantity that it makes it worth their while to be spending time in that garden. Is that right? Um, yes, yes. And, and for, uh, for honeybees, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, bees are, uh, honeybees are creatures of efficiency, and if there isn't enough of floral resources of pollen and nectar of any particular flower then they won't uh, visit that flower. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, 
honeybees, of course, direct the resources of the hive, the attention of the hive, to a particular nectar or pollen source. And if it's too small, they just won't direct the, mm. the bees there. And native bees also practice flower constancy, so that's called flower constancy. Right. Native bees, bumblebees, and other na- native bees also practice flower constancy, but less so than honeybees. And so um, keep in mind that what we might think is intuitive behavior, that's understanding how to gather pollen and nectar from each different flower species, is really, uh, it is somewhat intuitive, but it's also learned. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the bees have to learn how to extract uh, these floral resources. And mm-hmm. so they apparently <laughs> prefer to visit the same flower all day long if there's uh, sufficient quantity of it. Because each flower has a slightly different structure, am I right in saying that? So they Absolutely, might have to use yes. a slightly different practice yes. to get in there. Gosh, that's fascinating. I can yeah, understand that. Is. And some, some of this, some of their preferences, so bees have preferences as to which flowers they will visit, and this is, we've learned this from uh, Dr. Frankie's research, mm-hmm. And so some of this is predicated by the size or shape of the flower, so the accessibility of the pollen or the nectar, and, some, and the size of the bee. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if the uh, nectar is held down a fairly long nectar tube, a, a small bee, constricted nectar tube, a small bee may not be able to gain access to it, but a, a bee with a larger tongue, mm-hmm. uh, like a bumblebee, may. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so, so there's some, there's a lot of, and some flowers like plants in the daisy family are sort of open to everybody. <laughs> and uh, so there's a lot of very, very interesting relationships between uh, the bees and in uh, the flowers that they visit. One thing I, I learned just, you know, looking at the tip of the iceberg is so some of these bees don't even just, you know, use the mechanics. They actually buzz pollinate, right? So they actually mm-hmm. shake that pollen out. Yeah, but bumblebees um, are the the type of bee that does buzz pollination, and they're used in commercial greenhouses for mm. this purpose, mm. uh, and for to pollinate tomatoes and and peppers. Mm. Uh, they're also uh, some of our native plants also require uh, buzz pollination, and so they're they're gripping the the flower, and then I think buzzing their uh, exercising their wing muscles at I think the at high. Uh-huh. or something uh-huh. uh, and and then this is causes the pollen to drop onto their abdomen gosh uh, so yeah. so i keep sidetracking you because it's such a fascinating <laughs> subject but you were explaining so we we've got these kind of areas where we've got the similar plant or the same plants which are good pollinator plants I and mean, you could plant those in patches or try and get a, you know a good amount of that area what other things do we need to consider as we're planting our bee garden well, we want to think about places for uh, for bees to nest. So, our, our, of course, we know that honeybees are kept in a a hive of, of some kind. There's many a whole diversity of, of hives out now. Uh, but our native bees are primarily ground nesting. Seventy percent of them are ground nesting, and thirty percent are crevice nesting. And so, the the ground nesting bees need areas free of mulch, right, and okay. landscape fabric in order to. Uh, to dig a little uh, hole that looks like sort of a messy ant's nest, a small ant's nest, mm-hmm. that will, uh, and then which then has uh, chambers. Um, so they dig a tunnel, and then there's chambers uh, coming off of this. Mm-hmm. And so, so the the native bees are collecting pollen 
uh, to provision the nest for the young, mm-hmm. and they uh, they put that in the chambers and then form it into a ball, and then they will lay an egg on it and then uh, make a uh, a wall in the chamber with either chewed plant material or um, or mud or mm. uh, other things, and then they will repeat that process about five times. So mm. pollen is primarily a larval food, and that's the same with with honeybees. Right. And um, and so, of course, they need to have bare ground in order to do this. So yes. uh, we're all under water restrictions and trying to keep our water bills down and Mulch is certainly very good for soil fertility and and to develop soil structure. So you don't have to have an entire garden that is free of of uh, mulch, but you want to have uh, an area in preferably a sunny area with well drains and a well drained soil area mm. for native bees uh, to nest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's 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 interesting because it goes against some of the other things that we've been learning, but it's really important for us to make a space for these for these creatures as well. So yeah, that's that's. Thank you for sharing yeah. that part with us. Yeah. So so of course we have we do we just have to compromise. Yes. And, uh, but um, but it's not to say you need to leave half the garden <laughs> bare, but there are certainly areas uh, I'm sure around all of our gardens that we can leave we can leave bare. Yeah. Um, then the uh, then the other thirty percent of bees are crevice nesting, and uh, some of us are familiar with the very large carpenter bees mm. that are probably at least an inch or or an inch and a half long. Some of them, the big black shiny bees that mm. drill into uh, unpainted soft wood like redwood, mm. and so this so they're of course the biggest bees, and they're not eating the wood; they're drilling into it, and then they also are collecting pollen to provision their nest and uh, laying an egg on it. But most most native bees are much, uh, other native bees are much smaller, and they will be uh, drilling into, say, an old fence post or rotted uh, wood. Uh, they're not, they don't, or they'll be utilizing uh, existing holes in old nail holes in a house, or uh, in some of them uh, will just drill a hole in a, in a, um, hollow plant stem, like an elderberry mm. or teasel or mm. some flower stems or plant flower stems are, are hollow, and then uh, do the same thing, collect the pollen and mm-hmm. make an, a nest. And so you can buy uh, bee blocks um, that, are these, that are designed for this purpose, and, I, and specifically for the blue orchard mason bee, which mm. is beginning to be used commercially to pollinate mostly smaller orchards. Mm. And I've had quite fun with working with uh, groups of kids. So if you're looking for a summer project to do with your kids, um, have a look online because there are some examples of kind of bee blocks that you could make and have a few various drill bit sizes and you can make up something that hopefully might give a home to some bees. There, if There's lots of um, examples online and as uh, Hannah says, there's uh, this is a wonderful project because you could just use uh, pieces of um, of scrap wood, and I think the wood needs to be at least uh, six inches in depth. Eight, eight inches is is also good, but mm-hmm. some people are very very artistic, and and um, and other people make uh, these very elaborate bee hotels mm-hmm. in condominiums, and <laughs> uh, you, you, so you can make these out of all kinds of materials, but. One thing to note is that pests and diseases do build up in them, so you will ideally, after uh, a year, 
want to uh, make a new one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, some people put uh, paper straws uh, in in them for the uh, the bees into pre-drilled holes, and then just uh, we just throw away those straws uh, mm-hmm. after the bees have emerged in the spring. And mm-hmm. and other people uh, make something that uh, they will just plan on uh, renewing each year. Mm. So we've got a home for them. We've got um, some kind of flower for them. What else? What are we missing, <laughs> if anything? Uh, well, the, the, here's the, the most fun part of it all, is profusion of bloom. Ah. And so, so, of course, bee gardens are necessarily flower-filled gardens. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and so flowers make us happy uh, just as much as uh, they make bees happy, <laughs> so, so to speak. And so if you... Uh, fill your garden with flowers instead of having just a few things here and a few things there, uh, then I um, just guarantee your garden will become the most inspirational <laughs> and uplifting place. And the good thing is, is these the same flowers that uh, that support bees uh, also uh, are supporting many beneficial insects and um, hummingbirds and butterflies mm. and moths and so. Uh, so your garden becomes this wonderful place of life, and and yeah. birds, other birds <laughs> as well, like finches, and uh, and titmice. So, yeah. uh, so these bee gardens are just wonderful fun, and I'm I'm sure they will just absolutely transform your idea of what what a garden is. And so it's really beyond uh, just wanting to have something to pollinate your vegetable garden mm. or your fruit trees. I think these gardens are just become experiences in, the, in themselves. So, Kate, you are obviously, you know, you've really got drawn into this. You, I think maybe you've always had a love of botany and, and plants. And perhaps then did the bee, bee thing, the pollinator thing, come alongside that? Did it come after it? How did, how did this all evolve for you personally? Uh-huh. Well, I think like many of us, I started uh, gardening with uh, growing vegetables and and uh, we grew, we've been growing most of our own uh, vegetables for, I don't know, at least 30, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but I also love flowers, and I love, uh, I love floral gardens of many varieties. And, um, and so then I started noticing, well, there's all kinds of wonderful butterflies and hummingbirds and bees visiting these gardens. Mm-hmm. And so I became very interested then in, in uh, habitat gardens and planting specific for this purpose, and mm-hmm. so and these gardens are flower-filled also. Uh, then I just, I happened to meet uh, Dr. Gordon Frankie in, um, in the old uh, Fetzer Vineyards Garden um, the, at Valley Oaks, and mm-hmm. some people will remember that. And, uh, and so he has, his, one of his main focuses now is, is native bees and urban environments, and so he really taught me uh, most of what I know mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, a, a year and a half ago, I was approached by um, an editor at, at Ten Speed Press uh, and asked if I wanted to write a uh, book on bee-friendly gardening. Mm-hmm. And so I co-wrote this with uh, Professor uh, Gretchen LeBon mm-hmm. from San Francisco State University. And the book was uh, published in uh, in February of this year, so it's out in, in most bookstores. Great. So... 
you can get the idea of what to do from today's radio show but hopefully you follow that up by going and getting a copy of that book it sounds wonderful i know i'm going to be getting a copy of that well kate i really really appreciate your time today i'm i'm really interested in one other final thing so i know you have a huge amount of success with your amazing gardens and have even exhibited at, at chelsea flower show and other flower shows have you started to bring these ideas into those exhibit gardens Yes, um, yes, absolutely. Every garden that I design uh, is a is a habitat garden. Yeah. Uh, and so, even if it's not the the request of of people or of certainly of, of the Chelsea Flower Show or <laughs> or any of the other flower shows that we've participated in, but I just I feel like that we have a, a responsibility to uh, to support wildlife, and it's and it's really absolutely such a joy. And uh, every one of my clients has uh, called uh, after the garden was in and growing and said, I just can't believe how much life is in the garden. There's hummingbirds and butterflies everywhere and all these bees. Mm. And uh, and so and they're just clearly delighted. Mm. Um, And then also watching people uh, uh, reactions and and the joy, really, that uh, that they get from seeing both the, the colors and the masses of flowers of these mm. bee gardens and the life that's visiting them is just, mm. is really uh, just uh, something that um, I want to create everywhere. I just wanted to add, it, it just as the last uh, mm-hmm. piece of information, uh, we didn't get to what plants uh, oh, that, yes. that bees, uh, that to that bees um, avidly visit that people here in Mendocino County and elsewhere uh, may want to grow. And so if, if you don't mind, I'll no, just go No, please do. If you have things. the time, please do. <laughs> <laughs> so to give people some ideas, you might want to get a pen uh, if you're listening. Um, so I'll begin with some of our native plants. And so I just wanted to mention things like um, willow is, is a really excellent, uh, very early blooming uh, nectar source. And then um, things like our madrone trees and our um, maples, native maples and Japanese maples, for that matter, um, of any kind, have excellent, very bee-friendly blooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly all the California lilacs, both the ones that are in the sort of wildlands and the uh, cultivated varieties are excellent. And some are blooming really early and some are blooming like in um, March uh, February and March in chaparral areas, and, the, and some are blooming as late as uh, May and uh, even into early June. So mm-hmm. all of those are just beyond excellent. Uh, our California redbud is uh, absolutely gorgeous mm-hmm. and, and wonderful bee-friendly plant. Um, some people don't know the uh, Saskatoon berries or amelanchure, uh, but they're very, very beautiful native uh, shrubs very graceful and very drought-resistant and excellent, excellent uh, berries mm. that birds love also. And then, then going into um, some of the, uh, uh, the perennials, uh, there's, I think I'd mentioned uh, blanket flower earlier, uh, gillardia, mm-hmm. uh, very easy to bloom. It's a, a brilliant uh, either yellow or red daisy, uh, excellent uh, cultivar is called oranges and lemons. Mm. Um, Penstemons in general are very, very bee-friendly, and uh, one of our native penstemons, Penstemon heterophyllus, Catherine de la Mer, is 
the sort of the best of the bunch, but the other ones are absolutely gorgeous also. But most penstemons, even the, I think the European ones are, are also bee-friendly, but I would say they're, they're one of the, the best bee plants. Mm. Uh, a, the agastaches, like some people know anise hyssop is a, is a um, herb. Mm. Uh, they're just excellent and wonderful garden subjects for uh, summertime bloom. And very, very showy. Hummingbirds love them mm. also. And then uh, here's a, a lesser-known plant, but uh, really excellent, that's blooming now, starts blooming uh, really basically July 1st, but through November. It's called Calament, uh-huh. and that's C-A-L-A-M-I-N-T, and it's uh, just a small about foot-and-a-half by foot-and-a-half white-flowered uh, perennial with very mint-scented mint foliage, but it doesn't spread, and that is probably the top uh, summer honeybee uh, nectar plant, and you could plant a whole swath of it if you have uh, beehive. Mm. And I guarantee that your honeybees will just go crazy over it. Well, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> Gosh, you've given us, you've definitely given us, I feel like I have to go out there right right now and do some gardening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you and, so much, yeah. Kate. Yeah, and I just, I'll just finish with that in the back of our the, the Bee Friendly Garden, mm-hmm. uh, my and Gretchen's uh, book, are lots of lists and lots of there's lots of photographs and uh, ideas for uh, people um, of plants to plant in their own garden and mm-hmm. also things like sunflowers and cosmos both the orange and the white pink varieties are, are excellent uh, for bees uh, as well so Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time with us today. And like I say, it really inspires me to get out there. And I think the other thing that you've really brought to life is just not this idea of a garden of this kind of these more static flowers, but a garden as a thing which is just humming with beauty, right? It has all of these moving parts as well. So um, I'm looking forward to trying to develop something like that. And, And thanks for being in our community and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, well, thank you. No problem. Well, thank you so much to Kate Fry. What an incredible um, journey through a a spectacular garden. And perhaps we can all go home now and make gardens similar to what Kate has suggested. I do hope you go and take a look at her book. That's Kate Fry. Um, The last name is F-R-E-Y and Be Friendly Gardening. So do have a look and try and get yourself a copy of that book. It sounds like something we should all have. I want to finish off tonight's program with a big thank you to our guests for explaining to us how we can make our own gardens into absolute havens for pollinators and some of the reasons why it's so important that we do that. It's now approaching 8pm. I want to thank you for joining me tonight on the Ecology Hour and I'll speak with you again next month. You have been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County, public and community radio. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.